You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. So good afternoon, everyone, um, and welcome to the convening to acknowledge, celebrate, and learn from the recent National Academy's publication, Reducing Racial Inequalities in Climate Justice, Science, Practice, and Policy. My name is Sandra Susan Smith, and I am um, director of the Malcolm Wiener Center and faculty chair of the program in criminal justice. Um, and very happy to be co-sponsoring this event. So since the 1970s, the United States has relied heavily on its criminal legal system to address societal problems. Behaviors born from poverty, joblessness, mental illness, substance use disorders, and racial unrest have all been criminalized and punished. Local governments have also enlisted the criminal legal system to generate revenue, balancing municipal and county budgets via the cash register justice of fines and fees. The result has been the system's massive expansion. Budgets and personnel for law enforcement, the courts, and corrections mushroom to accommodate a 700% increase in incarceration rates, rate and a fourfold increase in the number of people on probation and parole. In 1970, as I'm sure you all know, so forgive me for telling you what you already know, our nation's jails and prisons held fewer than 200,000 people. They now hold over 1.9 million, nearly a fifth of the world's total prisoners, making the U.S. the country with the largest share of its population behind bars. In 1980, probation and parole supervised just shy of 1.5 million. Today, almost 4 million are under such supervision. All told, the criminal legal system now supervises or incarcerates over 4 million more than it did just 40 years ago. Indeed, the carceral net has widened so much that more than half of adults in the U.S. now have an immediate family member who has been to jail or prison. I count myself as one of those folks. Perhaps most important for our focus today, racial and ethnic disparities exist at every stage of the criminal legal system with black, indigenous, and brown people experiencing policing, arrest, detention, incarceration, community supervision, other sentences hidden from view, um, and collateral consequences um, from all of the above at rates substantially higher than white people. With this long-standing issue in mind, in 2020, the Committee on Law and Justice of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine convened an expert ad hoc committee to review and assess the scientific evidence on how racial disparities in criminal justice might be reduced through public policy. They assembled this awesome committee, the Committee on Reducing Racial Inequality in the Criminal Justice System, to carry out this study and produce a consensus report. The committee reviewed and synthesized a diverse body of uh, research from a variety of disciplines. I won't go into those. Um, And it generated public testimony from a variety of community participants in the course of of three public workshops. The product of their labors was released last fall. It is an awesome achievement that does an exceptional job both of synthesizing what we know about the complex roots of racial disparities, but importantly, and perhaps in some ways more importantly, the innovations that might help to address this seemingly intractable problem, including community-based solutions, non-criminal policy interventions, and criminal justice reforms. The volume has already been extraordinarily helpful um, in my own work and thinking. This morning, I have the honor of introducing two of the volume's editors. In addition to Yamrat Negusi and Emily Bakas, we have Khalil Gibran Muhammad, uh, who, as you all know, is the Ford Foundation Professor 
um, of history, race, and public policy here at the Kennedy School. He directs, well, you know, the Institutional um, Anti-Racism and Accountability Project, and is the former director of the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, a division of the New York Public Library, and the world's leading library and archive of global, global black history. Um, I have to say that I think the, the, the uh, kind of infusion of an historical perspective in this particular volume is what, for me, made it stand out above um, others that I've seen of its kind. And so, you know, I have to credit Tilio for the impact he ha he's had on this uh, particular volume. Um, uh, before leading uh, the Schomburg Center, Tilio was an associate professor at Indiana University. Khalil's scholarship examines, as you know, the broad intersection of racism, economic inequality, criminal justice, and democracy in the U.S. He is co-editor of Constructing the Carceral State, a special volume of the Journal of American History, and a contributor, contributor to a National Research Council study, The Growth of Incarceration in the United States, Exploring Causes and Consequences, another volume that I rely heavily on um, in my own work and thinking. Is currently co-directing the National Academy of Sciences. So Bruce Western is the Bryce Professor of Sociology and Social Justice and Director of the Justice Lab at Columbia University. He studies poverty and socioeconomic inequality with a focus on the U.S. criminal justice system. Current projects include a randomized experiment um, assessing the effects of criminal justice fines and fees on misdemeanor defendants in Oklahoma City and a field study of solitary confinement in, in Pennsylvania state prisons. Weston is also the principal investigator of the Square One project that aims to reimagine um, the public policy response to violence under conditions of poverty and racial inequality. He is everything and everywhere. The co-chair of the National Academy of Sciences panel, this panel in particular, he is the author of Homeward, Life um, in the Year After Prison, an extraordinarily well-written and uh, um, 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 text with, with just really rich and deep insights. I, I can't re recommend it enough if you haven't already read it. And Punishment and Inequality um, in America. He is uh, a member of the National Academy of the Sciences, the American Academy of Sciences, Arts and Sciences, and the American Academy of Public, of Political and Social Sciences. He's still micing up, so I'm going to read slowly for the rest of this. <laughs> Western received his PhD <laughs> in sociology uh, from the University of California, Los Angeles, and um, likes to talk about his uh, Australian roots. Um, with that, I will uh, allow you all to, to get to the stage and mic up um, before we begin. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for, for coming out. And uh, Bruce and I both traveled today. Um, I'm a big fan of Newark Airport, if you're ever in the dam, <laughs> as opposed to LaGuardia. Kept him on the tarmac much longer than, uh, than I was wow. delayed on my uh, approach here to the great city of Boston. In any case, uh, it's a real delight to have a chance to talk about this report on our home turf. Uh, some of you may know that Bruce Western spent many years here uh, at Harvard University in the sociology department and in the Kennedy School and also was the chair of the program in criminal justice uh, prior to Professor Smith coming on board. And where did Professor Smith go? Oh, there you are. Thank you so very much for the very warm uh, introduction. And it's, it's great to be able to do this work together um, across so many disciplines within this complicated space that, that we occupy. So Bruce and I are gonna sort of talk through um, some of the findings, uh, present some of the key 
ideas, the ways that this committee set up the report, which I think is novel and, and a bit unusual. And I think it's also just out the start to say that um, the National Academies, for those who don't know, have very uh, specific ways of establishing knowledge um, and some limitations as to uh, what a committee can say in a consensus report. Uh, and this report was complicated in that it was focused very specifically on the very broad context of social policy and, and criminal legal policy. So um, I'm going to hand it to Bruce to say hello, and then and we'll get through um, the presentation. I'll take the first half. Bruce will take the second half. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for uh, the invitation uh, to be here today to talk to you about uh, this report. Uh, uh, and thanks so much, Sandra, for uh, the introduction as well. I literally have just sped from... Uh, Logan, uh, Logan to here, and uh, um, uh, Khalil and I have been working on uh, this report with uh, a committee that he'll introduce you to uh, in a minute for the last two years. This was a, a very protracted process. Uh, we met uh, uh, entirely through the COVID period. Uh, only online. It's great to be able to talk about the report in this context. We've, we've, there's a slide deck uh, that you'll see that uh, National Academies prepared, uh, and uh, we'll talk about that today. I hope uh, that is just the jumping off point uh, for a discussion of uh, the process, uh, uh, the main findings, uh, the main research recommendations, and uh, where we might go from here. Awesome. So let's get started. Okay, so as we mentioned... Um, Should we move to... Maybe just a little bit, yeah. although I think they can see the broad outlines. So as you mentioned, the consensus report includes um, people who are social scientists uh, or uh, practitioners. And uh, here at Harvard, Bob Sam Robert Sampson, many of you know in the sociology department, uh, play a huge role in contributing to this report. Uh, this is important because the report takes an interdisciplinary approach. And so while um, some might imagine that the economists have a monopoly on what is the <laughs> most authoritative scientific evidence for making certain claims about what works and what doesn't work, uh, this report took as expansive a view as possible, including the possibility that uh, things that are being piloted show promising possibilities, but may not actually bear the same results in all places. So in general, um, we emphasize in this report that the criminal justice system uh, is multi-layered and dynamic. And any effort to approach this system from a singular point of contact uh, will likely lead to failure if the effort is to make a scalable and substantial change. And indeed, at multiple steps along the way, the consequences of contact within that system worsen uh, based on our findings. So we want to emphasize that the dynamism and the complex relationships between pretrial detention and police uh, involvement, along with sentencing, incarceration, and post-release supervision, are all things that operate within the, both the system itself, but also um, are feeding and responding to broader um, 
problems of social inequalities and structural racism. And so as you know here, criminal justice reform alone is not enough. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the way this report is set up. The first half being the kind of diagnostic, meaning um, how did we get here, which has a huge uh, interesting component of historical forces that we see as direct contributing factors to contemporary problems of structural racism and inequality. And then the second half of the report being a set of a potential interventions, some that exist within the system, some that exist uh, in the realm of social policy. And so racial inequality, as I've suggested already, is cumulative. The effect of procedures, decisions, and rules governing the interlocking agencies from police to corrections that comprise the criminal justice system. Of course, what has driven a lot of attention to this topic in more recent years have been the high-profile nature of instances of the killings of unarmed citizens and residents of this country. These police stops that lead to lethal use of force are, of course, just a small tip of a much larger iceberg, which contributes to day-to-day -to -day contact in communities often that are populated by people of color. And so whether or not it is walking or biking or vehicle stops, the relationship of police stops as a significant point of contact within the system is a huge driver of inequality itself. This is a graphic which helps uh, to at least understand how the committee itself approached the dynamism of the system and the multiple layers that are included here. Uh, things such as stop and search and the use of force, arrest themselves for serious and nonviolent offenses, uh, pretrial detention, which is uh, indeed a specialization for Professor Smith and the work that she's already cited. I encourage uh, those of you here interested in that space. And just to point out, in a moment uh, where reform itself is um, <coughs> shifting um, in, in ways that may suggest stalling, a lot of the research around the importance of bail reform, uh, that is to eliminate cash bail in particular, or to restrict the number of people detained pretrial, um, that evidence hasn't changed, but the politics have changed around it. Corrections, of course, is the next uh, layer in this uh, system of dynamic processes, where, of course, we recognize the high rates of disproportionate uh, incarceration uh, for black men. And then finally, sentencing, where black people are heavily overrepresented um, for those serving long terms, as well as suffering uh, the death penalty. When we look at community supervision, which this report uh, takes a stab at understanding the degree to which community supervision is itself a huge area of, of um, racial disparity and racial discretion that we see itself as um, leading to a lack of accountability and transparency in the system. So probation and population dropped by almost 20% between 2007 and 2019. But as we highlight here, stark racial disparities persist. As parole population has grown, black persons have remained more than twice as likely to be on parole as other groups. And finally, many probation and parole systems appear to be designed in ways that maximize opportunities for agents or officials with implicit or explicit bias to use discretion in ways that cause disproportionate harm. And again, to come back to an earlier point, uh, noted here by the size of the font, at each point, a person who might be directed out of the system, but instead uh, and treated more leniently or treated more harshly. In other words, um, the sooner they get out of the system, the less likely we are to see the system itself as a driver of broader inequality. 
So I'll talk a little bit about the social drivers of inequality as I emphasized in the way in which this report tries to take stock of a broad set of factors, both historical and contemporary, that are contributing to disproportionate crime itself and victimization before we even talk about what the appropriate response should be to that problem in and of itself. And I think it's important here to indicate that, again, eliminating various inequalities within the system will not stanch the problem of crime and victimization in communities themselves, which are a legacy and ongoing effect of various structural inequalities and structural racism. And so this is roughly uh, one angle to understand the way in which wealth disparities themselves, the legacy of concentrated disadvantage, of redlining, of explicit de jure segregation, and the ways in which we have never solved for those particular problems. And so we are to understand the relationship of housing and segregation as something that many of us study outside of the criminal legal system. Segregation and neighborhood poverty are closely associated with local pockets of joblessness, crumbling infrastructure, and a shortage of social services. People who live in low-wage and communities with low-wage work, unstable jobs, and higher employment have higher homicide and rates of violent crime. A lot of this is not new to people in this room, but a lot of the ways in which the criminal legal system has responded to this, or I should say our, our uh, state uh, political elites and federal government have been to invest in more policing as the mechanism to deliver quote unquote public safety. Um, but what we discover or dis, uh, define in chapter three of this report is the degree to which um, all low-income communities experience higher rates of crime and violence, but it is nearly impossible to match the levels of crime and violence associated with black and brown communities because there are very few white communities that are as poor or as subjected to various forms of stigma, stigma segregation and the saturation of the carceral state within those communities. And so you really have an apples to oranges situation in terms of looking at the problem of social and racial inequality that exists even before we talk about what the appropriate response should be. This is in many ways an inversion of the way in which most criminal justice scholars have looked at this in the past. More and more scholars are looking at it this way in the present, uh, but this is a big uh, part of why this report is important. We look at public health, we also recognize that the degree to which exposure to violence is linked to poor health outcomes amongst people of color, from chronic diseases, cancer, stroke, diabetes, asthma-related symptoms, as well as PTSD, depression. The old saying, violence begets violence, public health researchers recognize um, as a problem of epidemiology. And given that we have significant evidence and document as such in chapter two of this report, that even exposure to the violence of the criminal legal system is contributing to the problem. And so we want to identify connections and disparities that exist between the uh, mechanisms of violence. And we also want to talk about public health exposure to the toxicity of environmental racism, uh, which we also recognize, particularly lead exposure um, through research has contributed to disproportionate criminal offending as a result of that. And finally, the health disparities present among Black, Latino, Native American populations compound the detrimental health effects of having more contact with the justice system. COVID-19, and Bruce worked on a particular report around this, uh, laid bare just uh, how much the intersection of exposure uh, to 
poor public health infrastructure, i.e. the jail or prison itself, is a contributing factor to poor health outcomes uh, for those who are experiencing the system. And racial disparities in homicide victims. Uh, so disparities among those who are victims of homicide have grown since 2010, with Black Americans, Asian Americans, and Latinos at higher risk of being homicide victims than whites and others. These disparities grew as homicide rates rose sharply from 2014 to 2016, and again between 2019 and the present. Murders involving Blacks and Hispanic victims are notably less likely to be cleared by arrest relative to murders involving white victims. I am not going to read this one um, because it's more of the same, um, but just want to lift up the way that the report walks through um, how these problems within our social policy arena are contributing factors. And the one thing that I should mention um, as the historian, uh, along with Elizabeth Hinton, um, in this report is that we recognize as a consensus body, as a committee itself, uh, that history is both a contributing factor to defining such contexts like uh, segregation, uh, which is a stark reality in the United States presently, uh, the legacy effects and ongoing problems of zoning um, or mortgage discrimination and other features that the report points to, um, are here very present. But we also use history, in particularly chapter five of this report, um, to make light of past reform efforts uh, that we see um, the limitations of the choices made, particularly in, by federal officials, in pursuing um, a kind of half-hearted root causes approach to these changes. Uh, because we recognize that the implications of this report are that um, this is largely making a case for that root causes need to be uh, critical to the um, approach that we take here. Uh, I mean, a little bit, yeah, if you could just put it back on the slideshow. And so I did want to mention here that while no one on the committee has expertise in the field of education, uh, except one member, uh, Derek Neal, the economist at the University of Chicago, we recognize that in the broad scheme of things, the school to prison pipeline itself, the use and choice of school resources officers in prison, and certain interventions that um, we know work but are less prominent in the field of reform, such as Head Start, um, we see in this report as an important part of the conversation uh, for the scalable change and reform that we believe needs to happen. And uh, finally, um, just to illustrate how we graphically think about the relationship between these various drivers, from social drivers to public safety and criminal involvement to criminal justice drivers, all working in a kind of um, vert, uh, villainous um, feedback loop, the opposite virtuous. Um, here, where racial inequality and structural racism um, are reinforced in this system as each of these factors um, continue to feed on each other, uh, given that given what we know and have documented in this report. And uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Bruce. Bruce, do you want this little cheat sheet? Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, uh, this is uh, with. Just tap it for the next one. Just tap it. And I'll hit this for you. Uh, with two versions of uh, the, uh, the slide deck that uh, NAS helped uh, create for us. And this is the one I'm, I'm less familiar with. This is like the, <laughs> the full one. Um, so uh, the first half of the report, uh, which uh, Khalil just described, uh, 
documents the research on racial inequalities in crime and uh, criminal justice involvement and the social context uh, uh, for, those, uh, for those inequalities. The second half of the report <coughs> is recommendations. What do we do on the basis of the research evidence uh, to reduce racial inequality? And so that's the, uh, the piece uh, that I'm going to talk about. And, and we'll see that this discussion is broken up into three parts. Uh, there are reforms within the system itself, uh, but as Khalil was saying, by themselves, those reforms uh, are not sufficient. Uh, we uh, also need to make uh, investments in communities and public space within, uh, uh, within communities and look at uh, uh, community-based uh, sources of safety. Uh, and uh, we also need to look at improving material well-being in communities. So they're the, uh, the three big chunks of uh, uh, policy change that the report discusses. So if I just tap this, it advances. Ah, cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, what sorts of uh, criminal justice uh, reforms uh, could meaningfully uh, reduce, uh, reduce racial inequality? And uh, in general, the committee looked at two kinds of reforms. Uh, one kind uh, was specifically focused on uh, differential treatment by line officers, uh, line judges uh, in uh, the various stages of uh, criminal processing. So we're thinking about things like uh, uh, any bias training or body-worn cameras, uh, uh, which should, uh, is a way of increasing uh, police accountability. That's one set of strategies. Another set of strategies involves shrinking the overall footprint of the system uh, itself, uh, reducing the number of police stops, uh, reducing the amount of pretrial detention, particularly through the misdemeanor courts, uh, reducing... Uh, uh, the scale of imprisonment, particularly through long sentences. And it's through this second uh, policy approach, reducing the footprint, that we find empirically are the largest reductions in absolute racial inequalities. And it's there that we see the greatest promise uh, in the area of criminal justice reform for reducing racial inequality. The uh, report contains a big survey of a whole variety of different reform efforts. Uh, things we focus on include uh, uh, limiting jail detention, largely through bail reform, uh, as Khalil uh, discussed. Reevaluating uh, long sentences. Uh, there's now a very elderly population uh, in prison, and the prison population uh, has aged significantly as sentences uh, uh, have got longer. Uh, if cash bail uh, is replaced, uh, the evidence indicates it should be replaced uh, with an uh, actuarial system uh, uh, that uh, assesses, assesses risk in an unbiased uh, way. Uh, uh, reducing uh, uh, reducing uh, 
uh, arrest and revocations uh, for people under uh, probation and parole supervision. That's an, uh, another way in which uh, the footprint of the system uh, can be reduced. Uh, uh, we've passed through a period of two decades now of very, very substantial uh, reform and drug policy uh, in America. Um, uh, there's more that can be uh, done here. This is, I think, been an enormously successful uh, program of decarceration over the last 20 years, uh, and uh, more can be done there. And finally, uh, the committee recommends the elimination of the death penalty. In all of these cases, in all of the research uh, that we uh, reviewed, uh, the scale of criminal justice contact could be reduced very significantly, uh, which has uh, disproportionate effects in communities of colour uh, with very little adverse uh, or no uh, adverse effect uh, on public safety. Uh, uh, the committee uh, then uh, uh, turned its attention to the community context uh, of crime and in, I think in our understanding of uh, you know what makes uh, what makes for a safe community uh, particularly in the social world with uh, uh, context of deeply concentrated uh, poverty uh, associated with uh, racial segregation. Um, we saw significant source of community safety in uh, what sociologists have called uh, collective, uh, collective efficacy. And uh, uh, this involves uh, uh, levels of uh, trust among uh, community members uh, uh, to help each other uh, and uh, provide informal social control, bonds of informal social control uh, in communities. So it's an important uh, source of safety. Uh, if the community uh, itself is a source of safety rather than police uh, and prisons, uh, uh, then the community is uh, also a point at which uh, public policy intervention uh, can make uh, a, a real difference. And uh, there's a discussion of how uh, public policy can support uh, community safety, uh, in part by uh, uh, building uh, uh, building uh, collective uh, collective efficacy. We saw two uh, really important developments here in the research literature. There's a lot of interest right now in uh, community violence interruption (CVI), uh, as it's called. This is where uh, community-based organisations. Uh, themselves uh, are involved in de-escalating uh, conflict uh, when it becomes likely among that small group uh, of people who are likely to become involved in very serious violence, either as victims uh, or, or as perpetrators uh, of serious violence. Uh, the CVI uh, research literature is still pretty thin, uh, and so we recommend uh, uh, the proliferation of pilot studies that are accompanied by uh, strong evaluation uh, uh, programs. Uh, the second approach uh, involving uh, community investment uh, involves uh, different kinds of investment in public space. And so uh, the, this is things like 
uh, greening of the uh, environment, uh, addressing the problem of uh, abandoned lots, uh, improving infrastructure in public space like uh, uh, street lighting and uh, roads. Uh, uh, all of these things have been shown uh, uh, to reduce crime. And uh, we should view these investments uh, in communities as part of our community safety strategy that doesn't rely on uh, criminal justice uh, contact. Uh, this summarises basically uh, uh, what I just said. How can we expand the role of the community and community uh, safety? Uh, to a CVI, we looked at uh, uh, tribal systems uh, of justice, uh, uh, healing circles, uh, and other restorative measures, uh, non-retributive, non non-punitive measures. Uh, and there's a, a promising research literature uh, around tribal justice uh, systems. And the first thing on this uh, slide is uh, expanded, uh, uh, expanded systems of uh, community accountability in, in which uh, 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 police and other criminal justice agencies uh, are uh, uh, accountable to community organisations of different kinds. And uh, uh, in the literature we reviewed here, uh, uh, there's strong evidence of uh, reduced use of force, um, uh, and uh, fewer police complaints, fewer complaints uh, against police, uh, where strong uh, community accountability measures uh, exist. Some, some of the most promising uh, uh, research around this is focused uh, also on uh, federal oversight and pattern and practice investigations by uh, the Justice Department. Uh, uh, throughout our uh, in investigation of policy recommendations that were uh, grounded in the empirical research, we always try to be guided by four general principles, and I think this provides a, a framework uh, for thinking about policy recommendations in this area uh, to begin with. First is uh, reckoning and uh, and reconciliation. And the idea here is that the consideration of history and an, an acknowledgement of past harm sets the stage uh, for thinking more ambitiously, more structurally, aspirationally uh, about uh, reducing racial inequality in the project of policy change. Uh, participation, accountability, and, uh, and transparency, some of the most egregious uh, failures, uh, some of the most uh, uh, egregious uh, examples of uh, racial inequality uh, in the criminal justice system involve failures uh, of accountability. Uh, the other side of uh, the coin of expanding accountability uh, involves power sharing, elevating, uh, elevating uh, community voice. Uh, and we recognize the criminal justice policy uh, is uh, predominantly uh, a local affair. And there's enormous heterogeneity uh, in communities and uh, policy change is not going to look uh, the same uh, everywhere. Every community has its own particular history uh, of racial inequality. 
for, uh, for which local solutions are important. Uh, some of this is, is repeating uh, uh, what I've said. I wonder if we should push it, push it forward. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this being a National Academies report, Oh, this is mine. Oh, you want to go back to that? Yeah, <laughs> can we yeah. do it? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, this being a National Academies report, uh, of course, uh, we can't uh, finish up without saying something about uh, implications for uh, for research. Uh, and research has an, uh, an important role uh, to play in uh, reducing uh, racial inequality. Um, and uh, there are a whole variety of ideas here. Uh, one is uh, uh, the way in which uh, uh, the federal uh, the federal government uh, supports research in the area uh, of uh, criminal justice uh, policy change, and uh, overwhelmingly, and in the history that uh, Khalil described. Uh, so much of the strategy of uh, uh, DOJ funding uh, to localities has been r really uh, to law enforcement, to uh, uh, police departments and uh, sheriff's offices. And so uh, we encourage the development of grant-making mechanisms, and this is uh, starting to happen uh, already, uh, to community organisations. Uh, uh, community investment is uh, an important part of the strategy for community safety. Uh, then uh, community organisations should be uh, built into the uh, structure of federal funding and the research that follows from uh, that funding. Uh, data collection should be changed. If uh, racial inequality emerges through a multi-stage process in which uh, uh, the different uh, stages of the system are interlocking piece of pieces of the puzzle in which inequality emerges as the aggregate consequence. We need a data system that can follow people as they progress through the system. We don't really have that uh, at the moment. Uh, and uh, who are our partners in this process? Instead of uh, this space being, uh, who are the partners to researchers in this process? Instead of uh, law enforcement and criminal other criminal justice agencies, uh, monopolising this space, uh, uh, communities uh, important partners should be important partners in uh, evidence-based efforts uh, to reduce racial inequality. Uh, where should we uh, where should we go in uh, in the future? A uh, big theme of the report is the uh, this overwhelming focus on black-white uh, inequalities, but racial inequality is much more. Uh, complex than that. Uh, there are uh, really critical research gaps, uh, particularly around uh, indigenous communities, and this is an area that is uh, really ripe and urgent uh, uh, for extent, uh, expansion. We should study the impact of language accessibility, including how uh, language barriers for limited English proficient populations uh, limit access to justice. Um, and uh, we need to expand uh, uh, the research around uh, community-based alternatives for uh, safety. 
finish up by acknowledging uh, our uh, sponsors that supported this effort. This report was a long time in the making. Uh, there have been uh, many uh, National Academies reports uh, uh, on different aspects of criminal justice policy that have uh, delved into the problem of racial inequality uh, to, varying, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, this is the first report that uh, focused in a sustained way on assembling all of the research that we have on racial inequality and making uh, recommendations. This was uh, a decades-long effort uh, to develop a charge uh, around uh, this topic. And uh, uh, we're very grateful for all of the foundation support uh, that we received. So the floor is open. Uh, we've got uh, at least a half an hour before folks may need to move on to their next class session at 115. So feel free to go if, if that's um, what what you have to do. But uh, we've got plenty of time. You mentioned in the section about um, about just like the impact of, of, of the jail system, just the health impacts. And I think that's a little bit counterintuitive to what a lot of people say, for, especially for like the underhouse and uh, unhoused populations about like, oh, at least it's a warm bed and it's food. Um, and so I would love to hear just a little bit about more about like that particular um, issue, the issue of, of uh, health in jail systems and specifically for people who are already underhoused and homeless. I mean, you worked on the report, I'll let you. <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, there are, so uh, off the bat, as, uh, as your question uh, suggests that uh, uh, people who are likely to be incarcerated in jail are in very poor health. And, uh, and, uh, and partly uh, this is uh, diseases of poverty, uh, high rates of disability, asthma, obesity, things like that. Uh, partly it's uh, high rates of infectious disease uh, and, uh, and partly it's very poor uh, mental health. I think the, uh, the evidence is very clear uh, that people are at uh, elevated risk of infectious disease. Uh, in uh, in jail incarceration, we saw this in COVID, and where a, a number of jails just became uh, real hotspots of uh, in the early stage of the uh, pandemic. Cook County was like this in in Chicago, uh, uh, Rikers Island in uh, New York City, LA County Jail, and uh, in Los Angeles. So. Uh, uh, there's uh, and the you know that's a situation where there's an airborne pathogen uh, in systems that are very poorly vent ventilated. People are living in in very close quarters, so it's easy to see the mechanism that uh, disease transmission is elevated by the conditions uh, of incarceration. Uh, and uh, there's also research around uh, uh, mental health and particularly. Uh, conditions of isolation, uh, uh, solitary confinement is uh, very damaging for mental uh, mental health. But as you say, uh, people also have uh, access to correctional health care, and 
and courts have decided that uh, uh, there's a constitutional uh, right to uh, health care inside as uh, part of the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, uh, the quality of health care inside varies uh, enormously. It's a system that's entirely separate from uh, the rest of the healthcare system in the United States. And it's not subject to any of the oversight <coughs> uh, that uh, hospitals are, are around the country uh, uh, are subject to. And so uh, uh, the quality of healthcare uh, varies enormously. So on balance, uh, I think uh, uh, in incarceration is risky for health, despite uh, uh, you know a court-established right uh, to healthcare inside, and, and we really saw this during COVID, where it, uh, uh, being incarcerated at the early stages of the pandemic put you at very very high risk of getting COVID. Thank you, and thank you so much for the talk. It was so interesting. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if there is a fear around sort of localising a response and what that does if there are uneven resources available to different communities and how to conceive of the, the kind of uneven distribution of resources uh, whilst pushing forward a community-centred response. I'll just jump. Uh, so it, it may not be obvious to everyone um, that just police agencies alone count about 18,000 units of law enforcement across um, the entire jurisdictions that we call the United States. And constitutionally, there is no mechanism to create accountability in law enforcement other than a budgetary one, uh, which you know, can be a stick, but mostly it's been a carrot in terms of incentivizing uh, change in law enforcement. I mean, one thing that uh, is nationalized is uh, data collection. Um, and one mechanism of that is the Uniform Crime Report, which has been around for 90 years. Um, this report makes the argument that even if the federal government invested in better administrative data collection, um, could systematize even racial categorization, which is both fraught and has impacts on how we measure disparities um, as shifting populations of who's white and who's not, uh, particularly amongst Latino populations, um, challenges our, base, our basic ability to even measure disparity. Um, and this is a problem that will likely grow rather than uh, retreat in the years to come. So that is um, both the fatal flaw of the U.S. system of federalism when it comes to a problem of this scale. The federal government certainly played a huge part in creating patterns of likeness in terms of how local communities respond to the criminal justice system, both in the politics of punishment, which our 2014 report uh, talks about, as well as the role that the federal government through legislation like the crime bill uh, in incentivizing through block grants and the distribution of resources for the hiring of police and the building of prisons. Um, but that being said, it'll be a whole lot harder for the federal system to incentivize a move towards um, shrinking the scale of the system because those incentives run counter um, to uh, the criminal justice system's own bureaucratic um, incentive structure. It's, it's in the same sense as twice, but you get the point. 
hand it off to Bruce to add. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the point's well taken, right? That uh, if uh, if the recommendation of the report is uh, that uh, we need to uh, expand uh, community capacity to be the authors of their own safety for community themselves to be the authors of their own safety, then uh, the, uh, the poorest communities uh, are you know, going to have uh, the fewest resources for that project. And I, I think our, our answer has, has been federal policy. And, uh, uh, and but uh, we see the social policy levers as really important for uh, the community safety uh, the community safety strategy. There's a, so uh, an interesting example at the moment uh, is uh, 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 President Biden's executive order on uh, increasing uh, racial equity, and uh, and so uh, community uh, community safety is a, a multi-agency problem that involves uh, uh, a a lot of policy levers outside the justice system in uh, in housing and uh, and uh, uh, labour and HHS and uh, and I, I think in the perspective of the report, uh, all of these uh, social policy agencies uh, should be enlisted in an interagency process to provide federal support to more disadvantaged local uh, communities to build community sources of, of safety. Uh, I, think I think your point is right, and, and that's the strategy that we took uh, to that question. Um, yeah, thank you both for being here and for your research. Uh, Professor Mohammed, you mentioned in your third chapter um, a novel way of looking at the disparity between uh, poor communities of color impacted by policing compared to poor white communities impacted by policing and how it's almost an apple sar just comparison based on the ways others have looked at this. Can you speak a little bit more about those differences and why um, some of the data that when you're comparing the issues of police engagement in a poor white community might not look similar to uh, the findings that you'll find in, in poor communities of color and, and what some of the um, ways you decided to look at this problem uh, help you better understand the complexity of that. Yeah. So uh, one uh, little caveat, um, the report makes visible a body of research that isn't novel per se, just not often put in the service of this discussion about what is driving crime in communities and what we ought to do about it. Uh, and so that chapter, chapter three, uh, summarizes or synthesizes the research uh, that makes a fairly straightforward um, uh, claim based on the evidence, which is that uh, low-income communities are more likely to have higher rates of crime and violence, period. And the degree to which the black and brown communities have higher rates of crime and violence um, is measured in part by the degree to which their levels of poverty or concentrated disadvantage or ongoing uh, challenges of segregation are, um, there is no commensurate 
set of white communities to compare them to. And so in, in the sort of national political understanding uh, that often you know, sort of in popular ways gets debated as to why these communities are um, pathologically inclined to so much crime and violence, um, detaches itself from the evidence and reality that uh, we can measure the higher rates associated with the levels of disadvantage that exist in those communities. That being said, the goal um, by, by making a simple point that concentrated disadvantage is a driver of crime and victimization in those communities gets us to the argument about social policy intervention to solve for the problem of concentrated disadvantage rather than continuing to have uh, more investment in more criminal legal responses. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the history that informs that chapter is also the history that, one, um, pathways of economic mobility for white communities came through the federal distribution of mortgage subsidies um, for working class, low income white communities that a long time ago had high rates of violence associated with their own forms of concentrated disadvantage. And that history that produced the systemic exclusion of black and brown communities from those very benefits, what we euphemistically describe as redlining, um, leaves us with uh, a, a very clear policy choice not to apply social policy to low income black and brown communities over the course of most of the 20th century. Um, and instead to invest more and more in policing and prisons to respond to their levels of low income uh, realities. Thank you so much. This is very, very insightful. Um, I am an epidemiologist by training. Um, and so I study a lot of these things between like incarceration and thinking about health, particularly as it relates to reproductive health movement. And so I was curious, especially in terms of like your recommendations, thinking about the ways in which carceral states show up in sort of this medicalized way without much oversight to also be able to do research that really is abstractive in terms of racial ethnicity. Oh, that's Sorry. Just say the last part again. Oh, um, I was saying in terms of thinking about carceral states as sort of uh, domains by which are over-medicalized and have very little oversight and also are also privatized in this way that they perform hysterectomies. We saw that in ICE detention centers. We see that with researchers being able to go into various institutions and sort of do these medical experiments um, on citizens, right, and with very little oversight. And so I'm curious, in terms of how you're thinking about the intersection of public health, how you see that fuel of, or what the reform situation would look like, in terms of thinking of how prisons themselves are sort of domains by which medical experimentation happens, especially within the context of the National Academy of Science and Medicine. Yeah, this is a, this is a good question. I mean, and I mean, Khalil has uh, devoted a career to uh, investigating versions of this question. I, I would sort of give us a, a B minus uh, on this question. And, uh, uh, and uh, because I, uh, there's, uh, there are long historical discussions of uh, uh, how police departments, how uh, uh, prison departments have been harmful to uh, communities of color historically uh, uh, over centuries. Um, uh, 
there could have been a parallel discussion about the research community and uh, uh, the effects uh, uh, that researchers uh, have had, particularly uh, on people under uh, penal control. And, uh, um, uh, and we did not go that far. Uh, uh, and and that's, that's a real absence in the report. Uh, we did talk about uh, the importance of a different kind of relationship uh, between uh, the research community and uh, local communities in which uh, the criminal justice footprint falls most heavily. Uh, and instead of, uh, uh, and I, I, I think the implication certainly, maybe we say it directly in the report too, is that whereas researchers have often had a very cosy relationship with uh, police and DOC and so on, uh, we should uh, develop similar research partnerships with uh, community organisations uh, as well. So I think we're acknowledging the limitations and perhaps the harms of uh, research historically, uh, but we don't do a deep dive. And so I think then I sort of come out as a B minus on this question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to emphasize a point, I mean, this is where some of the constraints of the process that we are bound by within the National Academy's protocols limit certain kinds of, uh, you know, one, if the research on the researcher's own failings <laughs> is not there, except for you know a few a few radicals like myself, uh, then then it's not going to show up uh, in a report like this. I will say though, this is a an opportunity to emphasize again a kind of simple framing for this report. And while um, you know you could you could see this presentation and think, oh well, there was no you know grand thing I didn't already know or hadn't heard of. It is the it is the, the basic point that to solve the problem you describe means fewer people go in the system in the first place, which is a pretty radical departure from the way in which the research community has often tried to fix the system to be more efficient, to be fairer, to be quote unquote more just. But this is where history is helpful in this case, and the research that we did draw upon in this case is we, we express a fair amount of skepticism that this system can solve these problems in the absence of limiting the circumstances that drive people to engage in harmful behavior, whether it's personal or community-based, before law enforcement ever shows up in the first place. Yeah, I think, uh, I think if we had a, a really, particularly through the process of the National Academies report, so you got, uh, you got 20 people in a room who have to arrive at consensus on a, a very broad survey of uh, research. I, I think to have a, um, uh, a, a detailed consideration of uh, trade-offs uh, would need a, a really detailed understanding of, uh, of benefits and costs. And, and we don't, don't quite have that. Like the, uh, the research base uh, isn't there, partly for the, uh, the kinds of reasons uh, that, uh, that Khalil described. And so in the, uh, the deliberative process of the committee, 
um, uh, we took the approach of presenting alternatives. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, there are some people on the committee who uh, would see uh, uh, community-based approaches as uh, having a, a really great rate of return and uh, justice reform uh, uh, approaches as uh, not providing the bang for buck. But there are other people on the committee who would have uh, different views. And the way we sort of navigated that, I think, was uh, presenting alternatives. Um, I think it's, it wasn't a bad place to land. I think we do need to know more about CVI, and, uh, for instance, um, uh, and uh, other kinds of community investments. Uh, 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 research is developing there, but you know, we've been in a world in which the overwhelming attention of researchers uh, when it comes to crime has been on the question of how much do we punish? Right, that question has has sort of dominated uh, uh, the research uh, the research approach, and I think uh, this report is both trying to expand the research agenda and the menu of policy alternatives. I don't know if that's punting a bit on the question, but uh, I'll just I'll just add a, a brief coda. Um, I mean. The 2014 report on the growth of incarceration and the collateral consequences documented uh, very clearly the harmful effects of this level of incarceration that really are inconsistent with the very constitutional principles by which the criminal justice system operates. Mm -hmm. And the question in this report about how to consider possible solutions to reducing the scale of racial inequality in the system defined a set of possible outcomes that cannot meet rigorous research standards as they currently exist. But the question that helped us to see this process through was, we have lots of evidence of how this system is failing, and yet by virtue of policy and politics and inertia, a lot of people are okay with that. We have evidence, limited though it may be, of the possibilities for change, and all of a sudden, we have to have the highest standards of evidence before we make a change. So that is the tension that exists off the page um, in this report, but it is the one that a skeptic would bring to say, well, we don't know enough about community violence interruptions, show us the evidence. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not clear that most police agencies operating on the cover of legitimacy have very much evidence to support what they do. So, so we can't actually leave it to um, a single standard of rigorous scientific evidence to get our way out of this because it wasn't a single standard of scientific evidence that got us into this mess. Thank you so much, um, Samantha Lakin. And I uh, teach in the conflict resolution department at UMass Boston. Um, on the radio last night, I learned I could work, I could make more working entry level at the Department of Corrections. <laughs> 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 sure, in the, in the program. So uh, just 
not uh, just a data point for everyone. Um, thank you so much for um, for sharing this and uh, you know the the ways of thinking about you know the the shifts toward approach. I think is is really really important to just call out and have. Um, I, my question also comes off of you know sort of this type one type two error. Um, maybe an economist would love that, um, but in terms of not knowing enough or not having enough data about community interventions and you know the, the efficacy, et cetera. Um, just going back to the things that it's based on, um, building trust, you know, basically asking a community that's potentially been, you know, victimized over and over again um, or has experienced a particular trauma that's led to an incarceration or some other kind of, you know, um, issue there. How, I think this goes back into the social change, how do you envision sort of that taking place so that, I think one of the biggest questions is community-based initiatives are not a viable option because of the risks that are associated with building community trust that is sustainable that, you know, doesn't lead to basically slip up, right? More, more violence. So building up those systems, I think, are really challenging. And I wanted to ask, again, the things that are less able to be defined, you know, how would you, or how does the report sort of see that? Um, I believe they are fully viable options, uh, you know, in addition to the resource question. But then, again, what about these questions of, you know, feelings of victimization, of marginalization, of expectation, um, all of that, that, again, really can't measure, at least not right now. Thank you. Uh, just a, 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 a sort of a couple quick thoughts. So in chapter six, we take up, take on this question. And um, first of all, what, what I did not mention at the start is that uh, we had a very robust public engagement process when the committee began its work and included uh, multiple gatherings of public workshops to hear from a range of stakeholders uh, within the criminal legal system, uh, which included people doing community-based work, some of it in the formal sense of community violence interruption, others of it uh, revolving around uh, restorative justice, uh, particularly amongst indigenous practitioners. Uh, we heard from people doing domestic violence work. Um, we talked to survivors of uh, violence as well as survivors of violence and advocates of change within the criminal legal system. And I say all that to say that the many different stakeholders shared in common a commitment to a basic notion that the criminal legal system consistently fails to deliver what people need to heal, to feel safe, um, to become more productive and more connected to their communities. So what this chapter argues for and what the report recommends is uh, much more commitment, one, Bruce already mentioned, to testing through piloting things that are already happening in those communities, two, um, just a complete reorientation of how the research community itself understands how communities should have a voice in defining safety. And then three, developing research protocols to be able to more effectively measure the heterogeneity which, with, which exists within those communities, um, which is not uh, unified. 
and often does not have consensus and very demonstrably uh, includes people who believe in more reform and those who believe in more policing to deliver public safety. So we are mindful that uh, defining community in and of itself is quite difficult. And it's difficult in part because the scientific community has not invested enough in, in polling and or finding other instruments to measure those communities. Yeah, and, and I, I would add, uh, I, think that, uh, I, I, I think the issue of community trust is, uh, and it, it's run through uh, several of uh, your questions this afternoon, uh, is an enormous challenge. And I think um, part of the, uh, the community consultations that, uh, uh, that we went through in our process uh, is is equally a, a process of trying to build trust and uh, and uh, expand uh, expand voice and uh, uh, I think um, sort of who who you have around the table uh, in these sorts of processes is uh, enormously uh, enormously important and there's a risk here right that in recommending. Uh, uh, greater federal investment in uh, community organisations. Uh, uh, you know, there's a whole uh, sort of non-profit industrial complex that is ready, uh, ready to go uh, for those RFPs and solicitations uh, for these uh, for these community programs. And it's not the kind of community organisations that we're thinking about that uh, are often going to be at, uh, at the front of that. Uh, at the front of that line. And um, so I think, uh, I mean, <coughs> fundamentally, uh, the challenge is a political one and uh, uh, in which uh, uh, accountability of all public agencies ultimately uh, uh, resides in, uh, you know, the real countervailing power and voice of... Uh, uh, of local community representatives. And I think ultimately that's where trust comes from, right? Uh, is uh, uh, through uh, sharing power in a, uh, a, meaningful, uh, a meaningful way. One quick uh, add on to this. Uh, a colleague of, of Bruce's more than mine, although uh, uh, we did communicate once, he had a law professor named William Stunts, Magnificent book, The Collapse of the Criminal Justice System. He passed away as a Harvard Law School professor several years ago. But he made, he made an argument through a historical um, uh, work, which was that black people in particular had been subjected to top-down policymaking without democratic accountability, more so than any other population. And so part of what this report recognizes, although this is not mentioned in the report and is solving for implicitly, is greater accountability among political elites for, for the actual heterogeneity that exists in the community, which would probably lean more towards reform than has been historically been the case. Uh, by way of anecdote, not in the report, when I was working in New York City, leading the Schomburg at the time, I was active in um, city-based reform efforts and served on a two-year committee to focus on gun violence, interruption, and prevention. And it was obvious, um, based on who was sitting around the table, that 
the city of New York had consistently listened to the punitive voice of the black community to justify its policies, in this case of stop, question, frisk, against the voices of many more community representatives at this table saying, we don't need more um, heavy-handed policing and abusive policing of communities. We need X, Y, Z. And so, so that is partly both the legacy effect of really not paying much attention to what black people want other than when it suits the agenda of policy and political elites. Thank you very much. I'm I'm a professor for political science in Paris. I'm here for the term. And my neighbor. (laughs) 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 My office neighbor. Exactly. Um, And I mean, this dimension of the American society is one of the most difficult to understand for us coming from Europe, because here there is a, a real gap uh, between, between us and, and, and the U.S. Uh, you insist a lot on uh, the actors, the communities, who could uh, give a solution to the hunter, or at least push for a better solution to the hunter. But on the opposite side, who where and who are the actors who pushed for the state we have now and who could oppose to the proposals uh, that uh, are included in your report? It's a fundamental question. The, uh, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the history of the, uh, the emergence of Mass incarceration, mass criminalization, uh, is is told uh, briefly uh, in in the report. Uh, you know, there's a, a centuries long uh, history of uh, racial oppression and marginalization uh, that originates with settler colonialism and and slavery and their uh, institutional continuities. Uh, uh, through uh, after Reconstruction, through uh, Jim Crow, the you know uh, racial disparities in incarceration grow continuously over a century through the twentieth century uh, as uh, uh, as the modern pr- uh, prison system uh, as the modern prison system uh, develops. Um, so. At one level, uh, the the, uh, uh, the answer at uh, uh, a very macro uh, historical perspective is, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the political forces for white supremacy uh, are, are hugely foundational in our contemporary politics now around uh, transforming the system. Uh, there are strong and organized uh, constituencies uh, uh, within uh, the criminal justice system itself. There's uh, the research that we reviewed uh, is so clear on this. The, the resistance of uh, police efforts, uh, uh, external accountability, either to uh, uh, the Constitution through the Justice Department uh, or through uh, community oversight is, uh, uh, has been one of the largest obstacles uh, 
uh, to uh, transforming uh, policing in America. American police are really organized and really, uh, are really opposed uh, to efforts to install more meaningful, uh, more meaningful accountability. Uh, and so at, at some level, uh, the kinds of changes that we're discussing uh, is taking place against uh, a, an incredibly challenging uh, political in, uh, environment. And, and I think, I, I mean, I, I feel we should be uh, careful too uh, in not talking about uh, community as, as kind of a monolithic, undifferentiated voice. And, uh, uh, and, and, and that's complicated uh, as well. And I, I hear what Khalil's saying uh, uh, about New York City, that uh, retributive sentiment uh, can be found uh, widely. Uh, and you know, that's something that has to be reckoned with in the American political context. Thanks. So I have a question, um, really more, I just want to hear both of your comments on um, how you think about crime statistics and the measurement of crime, and uh, especially in, in communities with concentrated disadvantage. And we know so much of crime is unreported and that there's um, uh, mistrust of police and of government, and we also rely on residents to do the majority of reporting of crime. Um, and so um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on crime stats and, and their measurement. So your will <laughs> Well, not, it wasn't quite a question that I was expecting. Um, so we over-index um, behavior that is criminalized, some of which actually is law-breaking, some of which is not, like Contempt of cop is not actually against the law, meaning expressing one's First Amendment rights to protest the presence or inquisition of an officer who doesn't actually have permission to stop you um, is not against the law, but it's treated as such and often results in a disorderly conduct um, or resisting arrest charge, which then justifies the initial intrusion of privacy in the first place. So there's a universe of um, of things that show up as an arrest or as some kind of criminal contact or law enforcement contact, um, including in the traffic system. Um, we have a long body of research or a huge body of research on pretextual stops, um, which are at best attempts to identify petty offenses. Um, the classic, I mean, I don't know where you're from, if you know all of this or not, but you know, Classic offense for those who don't would be tinted windows, um, which is not only infinitely arbitrary uh, because they're not by definition against the law up to a certain point of, of, of light opacity. Um, but, but by the book, they were never really a, the problem of public safety or even traffic safety. They were, this is an opportunity to stop a motorist in an effort to search for contraband. So, um, so we have this, you know, this artifact of all this activity, and this, the statistics are the artifact, um, that then drive policy choices which are self-reinforcing. Um, and the fact that 
so much of this activity by the state is concentrated in low-income communities of color, then just simply reinforces both the stigma and the budgetary decision to do even more of it. And you just get this vicious cycle that plays out. Um, by the same token, the, the reverse is also true. Um, where low-income white communities are overwhelmingly non-urban, um, the state has far fewer resources dedicated to this kind of heavy-handed surveillance um, and pretextual stopping of those communities. And so there's a universe of activity that the state not only is not, is not interested in, aware of, doesn't have the actual infrastructure or capacity uh, to engage in it. The last thing on this point, which is something that is unusual um, to most people, um, our report in chapter two looked at uh, calls for service. And one of the mythologies, popular myths in the black community about the underreporting of criminal activity or the failure to clear violence in the community is this broken, distrustful relationship between members of the black community and law enforcement, which result in non-compliance or participation in criminal investigation. And the report uh, finds that uh, black people are most likely to call for service in the event of criminal victimization across, if, if I have this right, Bruce, both property and violent crimes across all racial categories, which is, which defies what the stereotype, you know, in popular language would be snitching um, stereotype, but also suggests that um, you have a dual contradictory problem. You have black people actually calling for help um, when they are crime victims, when they're actual crime victims, when an actual law has been broken, and very low levels of success in solving those crimes. And on the other side of the equation, a lot of police activity for non-criminal offenses um, to anticipate things that haven't happened yet. <laughs> so uh, if I got any of that wrong, Bruce, uh, correct me. <laughs> Two quick things I'd want to say is that I, I do think, and there seems to be strong research consensus uh, uh, around this, that uh, very serious violence, homicides specifically, uh, there seems to be a research consensus that uh, the way we measure is really tracking something real in, in communities. Uh, the other thing I'd, I'd say, which is uh, sort of the point on the other side of the coin. But I think, uh, you know, uh, violence very often um, is, in, at least in a micro-interactional way, uh, expressions, reflections of differences in social power. And, uh, and so uh, violence that happens within households, in particular, I think, is is tremendously uh, poorly measured domestic violence, family violence, uh, and, and uh, completely under-responded to by the system. Family violence lives in the misdemeanor court and uh, rarely rises uh, to the severity of the, uh, the felony courts. Um, and another way uh, we see the power context uh, 
of violent matter in first nation or it's a non-nation is uh, the harms caused by the system itself. So uh, 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 levels of victimization in prisons, uh, for example, is uh, very difficult uh, to measure, very difficult to gain public uh, access to. Uh, police use of force, uh, very difficult to measure, very, very difficult to gain public access to. I know, short question. <laughs> it was not be a two-part question. We'll make the first part just a brief comment. I didn't hear the word abolition spoken. Those, uh, what is often a critique is, well, what's to replace? It sounded like some of these things that you were talking about in terms of changing the conversation around what does public safety mean and community. That sounded sort of along the way. So that was going to be part A, but there's not time for that. Part B is uh, curious in the, around heterogeneity. Uh, places like Massachusetts in the juvenile justice system has seen over the last 20 years, not a 20 or 40, but an 85% decline in the system size. And I'm just curious, and often juvenile systems sort of, there's a little more play there to trying things, and I'm hoping it's not like where the, the nadir is starting to come. I'm just curious uh, how, how the research has talked about how, the, how, the, how you approached some examples, trying to end on a good enough positive <laughs> I'll take the first part on abolition and uh, Bruce will bring us home. Um, <laughs> way outside the scope of this report. <laughs> so, as, as I said uh, from the start, uh, the, the report is following protocols established by the National Academies and the extent to which um, one day there will be a more robust social science literature on abolition as the extent to which one day um, we'll see that term show up in the National Academies report. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> wow, that's, uh, that's moderate. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, yeah, ju uh, uh, detained juvenile populations have shrunk enormously, not just in Massachusetts, uh, but nationally as well. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a major success story. And... Uh, um, and, and there's, uh, speaking of abolition, there's, I mean, there's, there's a live movement to uh, close youth prisons uh, uh, around the country. NIJ is, uh, uh, and OJP is supporting worker uh, around that. Um, well, OJJDP is supporting work around that. And, uh, um, uh, and, uh, and I, I I'm glad you asked that because I think uh, there, there were a number of uh, uh, what I think of as success stories uh, like that, like the reduction in juvenile populations um, that we took lessons from in uh, trying to make recommendations. And uh, uh, I think the change in drug policy over the last 20 years and the real, really substantial reduction in the scale of drug incarceration uh, in state and federal prison uh, is, a, is a really major public policy uh, change uh, that I think was, you know, part of why we landed on our Shrink the Footprint uh, recommendation. Uh, California realignment, uh, uh, big... Uh, federal court ordered decarceration in, uh, in California, uh, 
large, uh, uh, largest benefits in uh, communities of colour. It's another example where the footprint was really uh, uh, shrunk substantially uh, and the end of stop and frisk in, uh, in New York City, uh, where, uh, where the footprint was massively reduced and the large absolute benefits redounded to uh, communities of colour. Uh, and I, I could get into the weeds of what this might mean for the mechanics of, uh, uh, of sentencing policy, of, uh, uh, of pretrial detention and, uh, and so on, but at a 30,000 foot level, it's examples like this, I think, uh, that pointed us in the direction of uh, making the system much, much smaller in order to reduce racial inequality. Well, I want to thank you all for, for being here. And, and thank, thank my good friend, Co-Chair Bruce Western, for making the trek up here to, to be with us today. Hopefully you'll have a couple of other uh, business items to, <laughs> to cover while, while you're here on this snowy day. Uh, and just to remind everyone that the report is available uh, for free download uh, online. And so certainly um, if you haven't done so already, take a look at it and, uh, and spread it around. Uh, it is very useful for people who are trying to make a big change in the system. Thank you very much. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.